Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron, live at the Toronto Real Estate Forum. Great feeling to be here in person. This is part of the Real Estate Forum's speaker video series, sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, RICOM, and Turner Townsend. Our guest is Michael Cooper, President and Chief Responsible Officer, Dream Unlimited, and uh, the giant umbrella under which many, many different asset types and properties and funds fall. We have had the uh, privilege of interviewing Michael once before, but that was, uh, I think, early days in COVID and we're in a... I was sitting in my kid's nursery when we did that. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely all video. So it's great to be face-to-face and, you know, and we're, we're in a very different investment environment than we were in early 2020. So definitely time for a refresher on the, uh, the dream experience. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's start. Let's just go back. We did it when we talked to you and your daughter, Courtney, but let's start again. Let's just maybe talk about your background, how you got into real estate, the beginning of dream, and, you know, <laughs> in five minutes, get us to today. Yeah. Okay. Five minutes is probably too long. I met a guy when I was 13 who uh, was in real estate and I was washing his boat and I, he became the most influential person in my life from the time I was 13 to 32. And uh, he, he really introduced me to everything. I didn't know anybody who worked at an office. He was building office buildings. He was a fascinating guy. He was an interesting guy because people wanted to be liked by him. So it wasn't like how tough you were or how much you yelled. He just had this personality that people wanted to be around. That was really influential, that kind of soft power. Uh, I learned everything, like everything about real estate and a lot about, you know, what a good person is. So that was really amazing. And then I worked with him when I was 32. It was 1993. It was a very difficult environment at that time. He was significantly older. I came up with ideas about what we should do for the future, and he suggested that I pursue them. So I pursued them with Ned Goodman, who was a merchant banker. He'd been in mutual funds, done a lot of work in public markets, which was really important because at the time, the assets were fine, the debt was a problem, and there was nobody with money. Everybody who knew anything about real estate had uh, no money. And, you know, 1993, Blackstone didn't have a real estate group. There wasn't a real estate private equity firm in the world. Pension funds, other than OMERS, did not invest directly in real estate. There weren't really rich people who were investing in real estate unless they made their money in real estate. But everybody who knew a lot about real estate was overinvested and was in trouble. So, you know, with Ned, what we really focused on was how do you bring liquidity to the market by raising money in the capital markets and the public markets? And that was really how we started. And since then, we've done just about everything in the public markets and a lot of different asset classes. We've done a lot of development suburban development, big communities, 15,000, 30,000 people live there. We've done urban developments, but we also have done a tremendous amount of uh, ownership of office buildings, industrial buildings, retail. So we kind of mixed it up. We ended up starting to have dedicated public vehicles that went very well. And then in 2019, we could see that the scale of the private markets was just growing. And it was See, it was supposed to be that the public markets had a complete transparency. You could buy any amount of a billion. You could buy a $10 share. You could buy one. You could buy a million. You got the same benefit. And then it turned out that private markets was beating it. Private uh, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, private equity, and people who had made money in technology and elsewhere. So they were really driving the market. So we started to focus on that in 2019. And now we're doing both public and private investing. We're in Canada, the U.S., and Europe. 
in the U.S., we're doing apartments and uh, industrial. In Europe, we're doing industrial, although we did do office before and we do office again. And in Canada, we're really focused on building affordable housing, impact investing. We're building 7 billion of uh, net zero communities. We do a lot of suburban development. We do condos, apartments, office buildings that we own that are existing. We got a portfolio of industrial buildings across the country. And we got a ski area in Colorado. <laughs> just for a little variety, just to keep just, you busy. Just for some play. Yeah. Now, just to be clear, we made 100 times our money on it so far. So wasn't all bad. Wow. We're making 10 times what we paid every year. <laughs> in that list, be, I'm struggling now to think of something that, uh, that you're not into. But given you've got such a broad exposure, are you looking at rebalancing now heading into the next cycle? We are not in things <laughs> that you have to operate. So generally, we're not in retirement homes. We're not in self-storage. Although we like those very much, we just don't feel that's us. We have a few hotels, but it's really, again, we have hotels that have a lot of food and beverage in our communities as amenities. We're not in the hotel business. So, we're, you know, those high-touch kind of things isn't what we do. But otherwise, we're really open-minded on what it is that makes a community work. And we're heavy investors all around in that. Any unusual asset classes that uh, you would get into coming up? You know, in the U.S., 50% of the public markets is non-traditional. It's like self-storage, towers, all that kind of stuff. And they've done very, very well. And again, Allied's got uh, some data centers. We don't know how to do that. We're actually swamped with opportunity, so. You could buy them, I think, right? They're going to hit the markets, the uh, rumor. Okay, but if we bought them, well, I don't know what we do the second day. <laughs> <laughs> and the metrics, so I've underwritten them before, and it does get very strange when your the valuations are $2,000 per square foot for what is essentially a high-tech industrial building. It's, yeah, it gets a little weird out of your comfort zone. Yeah, so we, st- we stick with things that we think that we understand really well. And uh, the way we approach our business, I think we add a lot of value in everything we do. And when we look at things that we don't think we could add a lot of value— Unless nobody else can either, we don't really see a great opportunity for us. <laughs> it always comes down to yield, right? I was at the stage because we got you know, a limited time with Michael. I think we'll just focus on dream and leadership and what it's been like for you taking this wild ride over the last couple of decades. And then we'll take advantage of the fact that you do have such a broad scope and talk about just the fundamentals and what we're experiencing today, November 30th, 2022. I find it interesting just thinking about, you know, you, you started from the scratch, you know, basically probably knocking on doors, asking for money to get the first acquisition. You've now grown it into, I don't know, how many billions do you have under management? What's the... 24 billion. Today, and it'll be different tomorrow and different the next day. I mean, you can't be involved in every transaction. Like, you're so broad. Are you still looking at every pro forma? Are you still on the ground? Like, you, you have to have had let go a little bit of that, right? It's funny you say that because I think with the skill that I bring to things are really around an organization team and in a big way, which direction do we go? When you get to, like, is this a good industrial building? we got tons of people who are better at it, tons of people who do the work. I think that I'm more focused on risk and return and direction. You know, who should be the key people? You know, how do you build a team that's sustainable, that's replicating itself? Do you miss the deal? Is that hard for you, or that's actually what you find more interesting? Well, I mean, I am involved in the deals, but it's more like, when we do a lot of work with the government, but I'm, I'm much more on the conceptual stage. And then I learned really early on something that I think is just such a marvelous thought. Somebody said to me that by the time somebody else can do something 85% as well as you, you should give it to them. So it's not like the apprenticeship program where somebody needs to be 100% and then they can make a shoe. But 
in what we do, if somebody can do it 85% as well as you, it's a good start. Maybe you help them a bit the second time they do it. They're not going to learn the last 15% unless they're doing it. That's true. But also they'll get over 100% of what you can do because we forget how much we divide our time. So I try to delegate early and I try to continually push people that manage to learn quickly. How many people at Dream? There's 2,000. A lot of people. How many on your executive? We don't really have it that way. Oh, well, like, we, we don't know. Well, who's how many? Exactly. So then, how many are direct <laughs> reporting to you? Like, how many are you kind of managing on a day-to-day basis? I have no idea. I work very closely <laughs> with about fifty people, but most of the work I do is really around ideas. And right. you know, a lot of time I feel more like a professor, where we're sitting around talking about, okay, this is the way we're seeing things, and these are the things that we should think about while we're doing things. But they do it. We have five public companies, and we've got, we got four funds, and they all have leadership. We do have a complicated system because no matter what your title is, you could be working on the next deal if it's your idea and it doesn't have to be related. So we're, we're pretty much like, we don't really play our position. We just help each other out with everything. Is that by design? Yes. And that is just to foster wanting to participate, wanting to come up with ideas, being creative? I think it's also about, uh, you know, people want to have opportunities in their career to do things that maybe are a little different what they did every day. And uh, you want to, keep expanding people's brains and you want people to have different kind of roles so they even get insights into the, the things that might be like for other people when they deal with them. So we always want to have people working on different things. I mean, ask anybody in real estate what they like about it and eventually it'll come up. It's, well, no day's the same. That's a big attraction, the personality types. I've worked with Jane Gavin since April 30th, 1998. We had lunch two weeks ago and she said to me something that I thought was really true but I hadn't thought of that way. She goes, you know, every day we're doing something we've never done before. 25 years later. So I think that is, our industry is the greatest industry. And I, I, I used to see people who were very proud that they were either in the movies or they were in the advertising business. And I was like, are you the one that gets coffee? Do you carry the cables? Like, it doesn't sound interesting to me at all, except for a couple of people. And then you look at real estate and our whole business is looking at something and saying, what's the best thing that could be done to that? How do we create something there that doesn't exist now? How do I create something that allows us to pay more and make more money than everybody else. So that, that is really where I focus on is, you know, the most creative part, which is how do we do something that's really special that the people we deal with will be well off, whether they're the vendor or governments and the residents, people in the neighborhood, the tenants, everybody's sort of better off because of what we did. I literally think it's the most creative thing anywhere. And what are you most excited about right now? Oh, boy. I think we're really excited about impact and affordable housing, net zero communities. We're excited about institutional money management, but there's also like a high level of uncertainty. So we're kind of, a lot of things we're excited about, lots of opportunities at the same time. It's like, whoa, let's make sure if we're wrong, we're still doing pretty good. I think we'll, we'll end, we'll end up spending the last sort of half of the interview watching the time, just going through the asset classes. I think that'll be an interesting just exercise to talk, see what, how you're thinking about them. Before we get there, we had Searing Yankee on, one of the superstars in your team who was talking about the impact fund and just what became very apparent, Adam and I talked about this in the after show afterwards, just, it was not just, you know, here's our policies, what we're doing. Like it was truly on like part of the blood, sweat and tears of what you're doing. It was to be net zero, carbon neutral, when did you realize that was table stakes in real estate? Because we just had Frank Maglioco on from PwC saying it's becoming transparent that everybody's on their mind, but it's still just starting. And yet you guys seem to have adopted it and absorbed it a decade ago. 
and put money into it. That's the other thing. Yeah, too. Not yeah, just conversation. Really, yeah. That's well, the exactly, big one. Is, right? yeah, yeah, actually, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, yeah. Well, indirectly or directly, we have about four hundred million dollars of our own money invested in impact investments. Look, this is really sincere and genuine, and it wasn't what's fashionable, not fashionable. I think a lot of it is around, you know, real estate affects people's lives. It reminds me of a sports team where somebody can own the sports team in your city, but everybody in the city feels it's theirs too. And I, I think that's something that we can do better and better at in real estate is realize there's a lot of stakeholders. And if you're building a building, it should be something that people like to look at. If you're building a building, it should be something that people like to wander around and the, the retail makes sense and there's public spaces for them to be part of. And generally that's a nice addition to the community. So we've been focusing on that. And then, you know, there was a period of time between uh, when the World Health Organization came out with COVID as a global whatever and March 14th, I think we just shut down Canada. And then George Floyd, his murder, I think it was the end of May, but June 2nd, everybody blacked out Instagram. But there was a period there. The whole world stopped. And there's this idea about, hey, who's being affected and who's working? Who's making sure that we have food? And how does all of this work? You know, it's just a weird, the weirdest time I've ever seen is like 10 or 12 weeks of deep thought, everybody at once. and uh, Sitting at home alone. Yeah, yeah. That's what we had lots of time to think, right? So... I would look at the different ways of getting news and thinking about, well, how many of these issues are, can real estate contribute to? And I kind of figured everything, absolutely everything. Racism, a lot of racism has to do with property, you know, maybe at the back of the bus, maybe you can't buy a house here, maybe you can't join this club. It's really where do you belong and where don't you belong? And in a way, it's like, how inclusive is the real estate itself? How do you make people feel good? Being part of a community is a lot of real estate and people having a respectful home, that's a big deal. And having access to things and parks and everything else. You start to go, go through everything. You know, obviously the environmental matters is a big deal. But we started to say, look, what if we said that every piece of real estate we have, we're going to look at it through the lens of how can we operate that piece of real estate, not just to get the good returns and with no sacrifice to the good returns and maybe even get higher returns by thinking about how do we use it to advance what it feels like for people? That was really the start of it. It was pretty sincere and genuine. Do you get a lot of blank faces or just yes. drop draws? Yeah. I, Michael, I, Michael's <laughs> lost it. Michael's been <laughs> yeah. too much time home alone. Yeah, 100%. And I was like, guys, we have to go fast. We have to go really fast. We got to create this impact. We got to announce it. We got to do everything we can. We can't be perfect because every day is going to matter. And it was going like, what are you talking about? And we announced it. I think it was October 13th of 2021 that we were converting our one of our public companies to do impact business. We were in the fundraising for a private fund. And uh, like three days later, Munich Reinsurance announces something. Then it was every three days, literally every, if you look at September, October, November, December, until the point that people now say like, everybody has to do that. And it was really, like, I know it sounds funny, but it's like when you're on a desert island only with time to think, sometimes you say things differently and that, that's what happened to us and Sering and Jamie and a bunch of others were part of us. We had this dialogue about what does real estate really mean and it was a way to look at everything we do completely differently. And since then, we won Keysai. We're doing a super cool project in the Le Breton Flats in Ottawa that we won and it's just so complicated. We're working with an affordable housing group and we're working with CMHC. We're helping the affordable housing group raising the money from CMHC, but it's intermingled in a building that we're building that also has affordable housing. Ours isn't as deeply affordable. We're getting to 41% affordable. We're working with the not-for-profit as to what type of people they're going to concentrate on. It's a net zero building. It's, it's like super cool that we put all this stuff together. We could win the bid. The returns will be great. It's one of the things I'm most proud about because it really was without a handbook. There wasn't anything to base it on. And we created one of the really unique frameworks to look at 
how do you measure the benefits that your community gets from what you're doing? So it's been really special. And real estate does prefer to just copy and paste something that's already done as opposed to make a new system. Funny, that's where my brain was going, is that there's a lot of risk in that though, right? Because you're, go- you're yinging another yang or whatever verbiage you want to use. Like you're, you're going, yeah, you're going against the grain and that's not necessarily the way that our industry likes to work. Yeah, I think the biggest risk, I mean, the financial risk we know how to assess. So we did a lot of things that were just so good to actually reduce risk and increase returns. But the big risk was like what you just said. It's like Michael's lost it. That that's the big emotional <laughs> risk. It's like, wow, he's zigging and there's nothing there. Yeah, it's, it's a cliff. Down. It's a cliff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but this is the point where you have the last laugh, ahead of the curve, because it's coming. Well, it's here. It's, it's here. here. Yeah. I mean, Canada's behind the curve. You know, globally. I mean, you're active in Europe. I mean, yeah. maybe that's part of the reason that you clued in here that needs to get uh, implemented domestically for you, but. We are behind the curve. In one irony, we're working with you guys on some MLI select uh, finances with CMHC. And as we were doing some of these affordable housing impact projects, a new construction, our team, Sering, Jamie, went to uh, see CMHC and said, we think we can help you achieve what you're trying to achieve with more affordable housing, better environmental progress with existing buildings. And it'll be less risky. It'll cost less, all this stuff. And we designed a pilot project that became MLI select. You know, that is a really wonderful thing. And when you think about impact, what we love about that is by going to the government with a policy idea and having them being innovative and supportive, we've done a, quite a bit of MLI Select. It wasn't even called that. It was just a pilot project. And now a lot of people are using it. And it's really wonderful that some of the things that we did has had that kind of benefit where now there's more affordable housing being created in existing buildings. They're reducing the carbon emissions. And it's through collaborating. In, uh, in the current environment, how much of what you're doing is uh, defensive? That's a great question. I mean, we look at it a little different. We ask, uh, is it two feet on the gas, two feet on the brakes, <laughs> one on each, which is kind of bumpy. And I'd say it's kind of bumpy now where... It probably is that. It's <laughs> one at each, yeah. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth, because we don't know where we are. Uncertainty. There's so much uncertainty. Yeah. You know, I guess that sometimes you have different levels of confidence. When well, you have more confidence, maybe you say, okay, let's put two feet on the gas. And uh, we're going to really do this. And now it's much more like everything we're using to measure could be wrong. And how do you increase the standard deviations of change that you're able to accommodate within your organization? So, you know, when you think about a REIT and you talk about one cent increase in FFO over a 90-day period, it really doesn't seem like a metric that you should use when everything in the world is total dissonance. And you're not sure where things are going to land. Flip side is there's a tremendous opportunity now, but um, I wouldn't spend your last dollar, but we'll get into that. Yeah, well, let's, why don't we go that now? We're, we're a little bit past halfway and we've got a couple of minutes left. I don't want to take too much time here. Uh, where do you want to start? Let's, do you want to start easy? Uh, oh, no, let's start hard. I didn't say office. Let's okay. jump right okay, into go, it. Go, yeah, go. We'll, we'll end off in industrial, you know, a nice high note. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> office, <laughs> office, where are we at? Office is going through something that... Uh, Nobody's ever seen before. Like the idea that uh, people stay at home and then maybe you call them back to work, maybe you don't. The federal government has like nobody in their buildings. The city and province have a little bit. Our office is full because, I mean, we have the kind of people that like to be with other people. But I think the social changes right now are huge. How they play out to office is really uncertain. So there's office buildings maybe that you think would be more desirable than others. I wouldn't want to have the ones that are less desirable now you're not going to be able to fill them up on price. Mm-hmm. You know, it's going to be like, my building is more free than your building. <laughs> so that's not going to work. Brand new buildings are doing great. 
And I think our buildings are doing pretty good. If you went around the office and you looked at different people in our office, I would say that the people leasing office space are sweating a little bit more than everybody else. Like they're working really hard and getting ahead a little bit. And I think it's coming back. But I think the real problem with office now is the lack of certainty if you put together a pro forma. You look at a pro forma, you're like, do you think the occupancy is reasonable? Where are rents going to go? We don't know. Yeah. We don't know where rental rates are going to go. We don't know where CapEx is going to go. You we don't know what cap turnover in, in leases that have any sense of where they're moving, right? Like, Well, right now, you know, a lot of people that we're dealing with are renewing because they don't know what to do longer term. And the rents have been quite good. We have a lot of interest in retail, which I never would have guessed. Because I think what's happened lately is the idea about whether you go to the office or not is not the same as to whether you want to go downtown and have fun. Because anywhere you can go downtown to have fun is slammed. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're getting all these incredible restaurants that we're shaking our head because they're paying us great rents and they're expensive, but they're just going to change the community. I think it's going to make our mm. office components more desirable. But we'll, we'll have to see. There is, if I told you what lease we did yesterday, you might say, well, do you think you can do it again today? How about next week? They have no idea. Overall, I think we're doing pretty good in our buildings. We're really trying to... Uh, make ours really boutique office buildings and kind of special, but it's, it's risky. Do you think this is sticky? Like, do you think that we're in for a, everybody works three days in the office permanently? Or do you think we're back to five days a week? Like, what's your kind of thoughts on that? When I started my career, if I had to compete with people who work three days in the office, I would be more successful. I think it's nuts. I think it's nuts. If you're the kind of ambitious person that wants to do as well as you can, I would want to be with leaders in the business. I'd want to be with my colleagues. I'd want to be face-to-face with tenants and banks and everybody. So I just think if you're in this to do your best, you'd want to... Is that what Courtney thinks? As a, as symbolic as just the younger generations. Because I, I agree with you, but I also know that if I was 10 years younger, I'd probably not, not agree with you. I think that that's a really interesting point because I'm going to challenge you a little bit because if you were 10 years younger and got to Canada three weeks ago, you would be in the office five days a week. So one of the things that we're really focused on is... Uh, we want employees with purpose. I think employees want a company with purpose, but now we're looking at our employees and we're telling everybody we interview, why does this person want to work here? What are they trying to get out of their life? Is that the right fit? Are these people, people who care about impact? Do they care about contributing with people? Do they care about doing something great? What is it? Do they care that what they're trying to do is make a better life for their family? We want people with real drive. Is that part of your hiring strategy? It's 100% of mine, for sure. <laughs> You're laughing, but... No, I'm not. Yeah, no, I'm up with something better. No, <laughs> I, was, I totally agree. Yeah. Here's our purpose. What's yours? Yeah. Do you align? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Retail. We already kind of talked a little bit about the restaurants. Maybe we'll jump into retail. I mean, as you indicated, I felt a return to normalcy when the restaurants downtown Toronto started filling up in you know May, May or June. All of a sudden, it came back to life. And that was a really good moment as we transitioned back to normal. So we do quite a bit of retail, but all of our retail is part of something else. So it could be a retail center that's part of a community. It could be like the distillery district. It could be like a lot of our residential buildings have retail. Our office building Is that strategy? Like you're not just doing a grocery anchored retail plaza? We do grocery anchored retail. We're doing one in Port Credit as part of Brightwater. We do a lot of them out west because they're part of this larger community. And we do look at how do we make the retail function best and help the community. So we don't look at maybe maximizing a retail center, we look at how do we maximize what we get out of the community. And if we can do something that gets us $100 more per front foot on selling lots, then we can put more money into creating that environment. Is that like independent coffee shops rather than a Starbucks? Like how does that, what do you mean by that? Improving the community. Maybe that's a bad example, but you know what I mean? You know, a a keg. Yeah. People love a keg. You know, if if you're in in Saskatoon, you got a keg and a couple other nice restaurants and 
a lot of nail shops and other things for people's well-being. Yeah, those things really do matter. We do a lot of really cool parks like dinosaur parks, and Norse parks and stuff like that because families love to be near a special park and it doesn't cost that much, but it makes such a big difference on your residents. So that's how we've always looked at things like that. But with retail, what I would say is all the kinds of retail that we see, let's say grocery anchored retail, it's good and uh, they're full and we're getting rent increases, not huge rent increases, but there's quite a bit of visibility to it. So I think if you were looking to pro forma for grocery and retail, you could say, I think I'm going to be pretty full. I think I'm going to get today's rent plus a little bit. You got to look at interest and say, okay, so maybe it's a eight or 9% IRR. Like from, if you buy one existing one now and uh, it's, it's pretty good. What kind of tenants don't add to community? Like a check cashing place or what are you thinking about that? We don't have, I mean, the communities we have are pretty nice. But in other communities, a check cashing place is really, really valuable. It's a place you can send money. So it matches the community. <laughs> I know it's really funny, but we get paid a lot of money for cannabis shops and people like them. Yeah. <laughs> Canadians have uh, a real love for that. Yeah. Well, we've had this debate before though, but they can't all survive. No, no, no. 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 You got to pick the right horse. Yeah. <laughs> Here, this is a tweener. Talk about just e-commerce, the impact that's had on real estate. And then we'll transition into industrial based on that comment. Oh, it's interesting. E-commerce was absolutely everything a while ago. And now there's a lot of other things that also have a lot of impact. So with e-commerce, I don't know the numbers. You need a lot more industrial space and less retail space. But now it feels like... There's a balance, right? Yeah, but now it feels like people want to be in the stores and they want to see things, but you also need a lot of industrial. But there's a lot of things going on with a lot more... You could call it onshoring, but it's really automated manufacturing, a lot more logistics. So I think the demand for industrial space is unbelievable from many, many different sources. So while everybody talked before about e-commerce now, I think there's a lot of things that are... But retail sales are still strong though. Like the fundamentals of retail haven't really been impacted by e-commerce. I mean, people thought it'd be worse than it is, perhaps. But if I'm selling something, right? And I'm selling to the retailer and it goes through Amazon or through my store, it's still retail. So retail sales are off the charts. They're big online and they're big in the stores. Hence inflation. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see once all the holiday shopping numbers come in in an option where we weren't having to order all our gifts off Amazon like we did in you know, 2020 yeah. and see what the split is there as compared to previous years. Yeah, I think so. Well, look, we don't know. The things that are happening are like people have more money than they ever did before. There's inflation. More people working. High wages. And uh, working from home, so commutes look different. Working from home, inflation. Like, they're just, you look at yeah. this and say, hey, like, this is a lot of things. We don't know how it settles out. I actually think the Christmas sales are going to be really interesting because we're seeing every month, you know, we get a number for CPI, we get a number for retail. And they don't fit. They're all over the map. You can see that, like, lumber's come down, steel's come down. Labor's up. Anything with services, like, you know, getting a massage or getting your nails on all these things are expensive and it's hard to get an appointment. So we're going through a rotation. We'll see where you end up. But if I had to bet, I think people would be surprised that uh, Christmas sales are higher than they expect. And just finish off an industrial, fundamentals are strong in industrial. So that's probably the, have the least worry if you had to kind of bucket them all. Office, retail, more challenging. Industrial is kind of the easiest one. I think a lot between industrial and residential because they have some different attributes. Industrial has a lot going for it. And the thing that's so unusual is it just seems to have a lot going for it every year. So if e-commerce was 2020, today could be onshoring. You know, like there's just so many drivers of it and we're developing a lot and we own a lot. 
So, you know, there we got a lot of velocity. So you ask, what rent are you getting? And what's our occupancy? So between all our stuff, we're well over 99%. We're like, guys, you should be pushing rents more. And, and at the same time, you know, with all the uncertainty in the rest of the world, you think, well, maybe we should be safe, except everything that's coming out of industrial is very positive. Yeah, it seems to be the least of concern when you had to compare them all sort of apples to apples. Yeah. I wanted to save apartments for last. I mean, fundamentally, for sure, I mean, the vacancies are down, rents are soaring. That is kind of a negative, depending on who you are and how you look at it. Oh. Look, I use February 2020 as a thing to compare things to. So in March, when the world shut down, if I had a direct relation with God, I would say to God, you know, if when this is all over, the stuff I have is worth what it is in February 2020, I would be quite happy with that. So I look at February 2020 and compare it to now. And a lot of things, we're doing really well compared to February 20, which is almost inconceivable. I mean, house prices are down to November of last year. Still up dramatically. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's nothing wrong with that. So you look at apartment rents, I, we were building in 2018 and we said, this is what the rent is today. We're going to grow it by 3%. So that was fine in 2018. It looked too fine in 2019. In 2020, it's like, oh no, we're 20% below budget. Maybe we got to take write downs on these assets. Still three years away, right? So in 2021, hang on, we have a chance. It looks like they're getting. So sometime in 2021 to sometime in 2022, the rents are up 20%, but they're still below the trend line from 2018. And I think that's where we're all getting messed up because you, we're looking at a chart that's like four days. Today, the rents are perfectly in line with where they were going to be in, two, where we expect them to be in 2018. I'm not sure they've kept up with inflation. So over four or five years, rents are actually turning out to be where they are. It's just they went down 20% and nobody said, oh my God, <laughs> the sky is falling. Then they go back up to where they were. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe rents are roaring. Rents are at a fair level. So I think apartments look really good. I think that the fact that interest rates are up probably keeps more people renting, which is also good. But the notion around what fairness is in terms of rents and what the government's role is does create an environment that could you could wake up and say, oh, things are different than I thought. So that's a completely different kind of risk. Absent that, I think apartments probably have as transparent and reliable net income as you would expect from industrial. And I think those two are the most clear if I had to bet, I would go a little bit more with industrial because nobody's going to have any kind of influence on rent controls in industrial. You don't have the political risk. Yeah. And that is the big problem, of course, when your rent's jumping 15% annually. That uh, Once. Saying, they jumped yeah. once back to where they were. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you have mistakes, Adam. Get it right. <laughs> so if we're, we're heading into another cycle, are you focusing most of your energy on those two asset classes? Yes. We've got a lot on that, but we also have a lot on you know, building new apartments, creating net zero, buying existing apartments and making them more appropriate for today, more affordable, more environmental. So I, I think all of that together, it's a lot. We're also looking at growing our asset management business, which is really compatible with being able to do our best work, but not necessarily risk our whole balance sheet. So, you know, using other people's money as well as our own, I think is going to allow us to focus on doing our best work. Uh, Michael, we're almost out of time here. You have your panel coming up uh, tomorrow, I think. It's on uh, risk. Are you going to increase or decrease people's anxiety in the room? What's your message? Oh, that's a great question. I think that we had this like impossible, sustainable environment where interest rates were 1% and you could get 11. You could get 11 times the risk-free rate. And now I think what we're really thinking a lot about is, well, what is the right? That's not our sustainable premium. 
You know what I mean? Like everybody in the world would be trillionaires if you could consistently get 11 times the risk-free rate, by the way, without risk. (laughs) Now risk is back on the table. So it's a different part of your brain. And the question we struggle with is, you know, you can get a GIC for 5%. So what more do you need for different kinds of asset classes? What we talked about was residential industrials seem to be, there's more transparency. You could kind of predict it. So maybe that's one return. Office, you'd want a higher return. Retails in between. Home building, which has been good. You know, you got land banking and there's not a lot of certainty, but man, we're growing. The, The population growth in Canada is insane. And I think immigrants that come here are going to need everything. So I you, think you we can't ignore that. Yeah, you cannot ignore that. Yeah. It's going to drive every asset class positively. So what's the biggest risk to you in 2023 and beyond? I would say the biggest risk for us is we underestimate that things could get bad. And, and you know, to make it really, really simple, the biggest risk is there's hiccups on borrowing money to sustain it. So if you said, oh, interest rates are going to be 6% for a mortgage instead of 3 or 4 we can handle that. If you said banks are going to say, give me back the money, that's where you get into big, big problems. We can handle a ton of that. But if it happens in total and everybody else is having a hard time, because that's really what happened in 1992. So that's the biggest risk. Having said that, Canadian banks are at eight times, not 20 times. There's huge money in private equity where there was none. Pension funds are in it. High net worth guys are buying real estate. So it's a completely different environment. And I can't imagine that we get there, but that would be the biggest risk. So you, Aaron, you're the biggest risk, the lender. (laughs) (laughs) We are out of time. Michael, thanks so much for coming by to speak with us at Toronto Real Estate Forum. It's been great. You are one of the featured guests in the speaker video series sponsored by Dow Vukovic, ML Emporio Properties, RICOM, Turner Townsend. Thanks, of course, to the Real Estate Forums for putting this uh, entire event together and to First National for powering the podcast. That was a long-winded exit, but most importantly, Michael, thanks a lot. Thanks, First National. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Michael. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast After Show, where we talk about the conversation we just had with Michael Cooper. That was a little bit intimidating. We've done a ton of these with a ton of guests. Hundreds at this point. Yeah, and... I got to say, when he sat down here for the first minute, I'm like, don't screw this up. Don't screw this up. <laughs> and then, of course, the juices start flowing and the conversation just goes. He's very easy to talk to. And even off recording, off camera, he's jovial and happy to just chit chat. Likes real estate, loves real estate. Basically happy to talk anything about real estate. Doesn't hurt that we could drop Courtney's name a couple of times. We know your daughter. We're friends. We've had We're her friends. on a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. Be nice to us. Yeah. <laughs> well, that did throw me. At one point, he said, well, what does Courtney think about that? And I was like, why is Aaron asking what his daughter thinks about it? Oh, just for the generational divide. I okay, that, her yeah, I think he kind of yeah, gave me a funny yeah. look too. You're like, oh no, he gave yeah. me a funny look. Yeah. <laughs> Does he like me anymore? He doesn't like me anymore. Great guest. I mean, you could drop any asset class or sub-asset class or ski resort question into the mix. And he's got a pretty well-articulated opinion on it. It is neat, right? Someone like that. The highlight for me of that conversation was the revelation of how impact investing and the impact fund came about. And that it was, while he was stuck at home, had nothing to do but think about his business and his impact in society, community. Legacy likely. Legacy likely. And he had this sort of epiphany, aha moment, however you want to classify it of, we can do something more. Real estate has the ability to have an impact. So therefore, this whole trajectory of dream and what they're doing 
pivoted and changed. And it sounds like, I mean, you couldn't really see his face if you're just listening online and not watching on the web series or the video series. When I mentioned, oh no, did you get sort of resistance? Absolutely he did. When he showed up that whatever day it was afterward, feeling like, guys, this is what we're doing. It was clear he had to negotiate, right? Which I think is probably interesting for the founder and owner and decision maker, but he had to get buy-in from his team and it sounds like it required a little bit, but now, obviously, Eddie alluded to, they announced it. And then just forever after that, there's just these constant announcements of other institutions going in the exact same direction, just further validating that his instincts, his intuition was accurate. And now look at them, right? Like some of the stuff that they're doing, we've referenced Tyrion Yankee's episode, but she talked about it so eloquently, just all of the ways in which the impact investment are contributing to all sorts of greater good in society, social outcomes, but also... Retaining yield. Retaining yield and improving yield. You know, when you talk about resistance, the knee-jerk reaction for anything in that space for the last handful of years was, well, okay, maybe we can do it, but at the sacrifice of return. That is not the case anymore. And we're seeing the shifting of the balance to enhancing return. And he realized that early. And it's always interesting as we talk to hundreds of people a year in real estate. Everybody's got opinions, but not all of them have the ability to have an opinion and then make a several hundred million dollar decision to back it up. That's where it really kind of the dividing line in terms of your strongly held beliefs. One of the interesting things I was trying to poke at a little bit through the personal side and what are his challenges. And it's a consistent answer. It's just people. That side of the business is just complicated. It was humanizing for him to say that. Like it wasn't like counting my money, right? Like (laughs) (laughs) it was a real answer. It was, this is one of the hard parts, right? Because the dollars and cents of the investments and the strategy and the spreadsheets and the pro formas and everything you do, I think ultimately are just calculated. People, you can't necessarily go by just an algorithm and it makes it more complicated. It makes it challenging in a good way and in a negative way. But I thought that was a really interesting answer. You manage people. Is that the toughest part of your job? It's funny you asked me that because no, the answer is no. But I'm not a deal guy, right? Like I love real estate. I love the theory of real estate. I love this opportunity to talk about real estate, but I'm not a deal junkie, right? Like the pro formas and the numbers, while I find it interesting, it's just not what gets me going, right? The culture, people management, the team atmosphere, all that kind of stuff is really what I spend a lot of my time thinking about naturally. But you were on that track in your job, the deal junkie track. Yeah, yeah. And I I made a decision to move away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mentor, Drew McCauley, Loved when the deal's closed. And he was like, yes, he's deal a deal closed, junkie. <laughs> which is, yeah, right. I think mean, you can't be a successful salesperson without having that sort of adrenaline rush. I've noticed very quickly that I just didn't really. Am I dead inside? <laughs> no, I belong in operations. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. That's it for the Michael Cooper After Show. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the very end. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.